I titled the, the sermon tonight, Crying Out to God. Crying out to God when oppressed by opponents. And I, I trust that as you got the email this morning, uh, as the, it was sent out early, the automated email, it goes out early in the morning. So when you wake up, it's there waiting for you in your inbox. You read it and you might think, well, how do I apply that to my life? I don't have people chasing me. I don't have enemies hunting my life down. I hope that as we kind of go through it tonight, it'll, it'll, it'll be practical and we can apply it to our lives and the Lord will have much truth and much help for us from his word. So follow with me. Let me read starting with the title again, which is inspired. It's part of the text. Here's what it says. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, and give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men... By the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. From those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and is a young lion lurking in the hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord. From men of the world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their babes. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And then, if you look at the title of Psalm 18... Just the opening couple of words, for the choir director. That's the conclusion to Psalm 17. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation and this assembly of believers. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, the Bible, in the English language, in our own language, that we can have it and know it and read it and understand it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give light to us as we look into the Word. So teach us, mold us into the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading not too long ago a little bit of Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's 
healthy for me to do that from time to time. And in the early Christian persecution, in the opening few centuries of the Roman Empire, Fox tells the story of a man named Cyprian. Cyprian was a godly leader. He was a pious leader in the early church in Africa. He was a bishop in the city of Carthage in Egypt. John Fox says about this man that he blended all the virtues together of being a godly Christian. Many, Fox says, were converted under his teaching. Many were taught under his ministry. Many were discipled under his leadership. Many people looked at his life and saw what godliness and piety is. About the year 250 AD, he was publicly summoned before the Roman emperor Decius. And when he was brought before the emperor, the pagan population swelled the streets and they began to publicly shout, Cyprius to the lions and Cyprius to all the wild beasts. Amazingly, he was released and was able to go home. But years went by, and he was later summoned again before the authorities, and this time he was exiled to a foreign city by way of a punishment. When that particular Roman governor who had exiled him had died, Cyprian was able to return home. But after he returned home to his city of Carthage, it wasn't long before the next governor sought for him. And found him and seized him. And he was brought before a new wicked Roman governor who sentenced him to be killed, which he was on September 14th, 258 AD. And I tell you that very simple bio of the early church leader, Cyprian, because he was a man of the word. He was a man who loved the preaching of the gospel. He was a man who John Fox said he was a man of pious, godly lifestyle. He was holy in his life, and yet he was a man who was hated by rebels and hunted by tyrants. He was a man of God, oppressed by opponents. Sometimes, When men and women of God are oppressed by our opponents, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing something wrong. It just might might be that you're walking in holiness, you're walking in integrity, you're living a godly life, you're pursuing the truth, and yet in God's wise and good sovereignty, the enemies are out and they're after you. Jesus said that, didn't he? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, 11, in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me? Later on in Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Later in, in his life, Jesus said in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will. They will also persecute you. What 
do you do when that happens? And that's where Psalm 17 is so helpful. That's where Psalm 17 is such a relevant, a practical, and a needed psalm. Now, from the superscript, that is from the title, we know that David wrote this, and he wrote it by his own writing as a prayer. He wrote it as a prayer. It's the heading there. You see it. It's the same word as verse 1 when David said, give ear to my prayer. He's crying out to God. And it was intended, we know from the subscription, the concluding phrase for the choir director, We know that this was intended to be sung. It was intended to be memorized. It was intended to be remembered for the choir director for the singing of the congregation of Israel. So this is a needed psalm for us because when the oppressors are after you, here's some initial observations. Number one, you cry out to God. You cry out to God. Number two, you have to cry out and call to God knowing that he will and believing that he will answer. And then we need to depend upon and lean on God's love. And then what David is going to teach is we have to pray for God to deal with his enemies. Deal with the enemies. And then finally in the psalm, just a simple observation is we have to love our enemies and await the beatific vision. I'm going to define that and explain that a little bit later. So Psalm 17 in your outline there in front of you, it's a model prayer. It's going to teach us how to pray when you're oppressed by opponents. Now, I often say this, I have no idea what tomorrow holds. I have no idea what this year or next year holds politically with legislation and our nation and our world. We have no idea, but it may not be all that long before people like you and me are oppressed and pursued by opponents of the gospel. What do we do? What do we do when the threats are here? What do we do when the enemies are mocking? What do we do when they are drawing close? Really, in the outline, I wanted to keep it as simple as I can so that it would be memorable. Number one, test me, O God. Number two, keep me, O God. Number three, deliver me, O God. So let's walk through these three ways in which we can learn to pray from David when we are oppressed by opponents. In your outline, number one, test me, O God, test me. I mean, this is a cry from David to God to come and examine him and test him. We're learning to be humble. We're learning to be humble. Look at verse one. David prays, and it's just urgent prayers. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Verse 1, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips, and let my judgment come forth from your presence and let your eyes look with equity. David wants the attention of God, like a, like a child who goes to his mom and dad, and the little child is tugging on the coat saying, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, hear me. David wants the attention of God. And notice in verses 3, 4, and 5, the amazing integrity of this man. Look at verse three. You have tried 
my heart. You've examined me. You've refined me. You've scrutinized my heart. Verse 3, you have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. It's like, God, you've tried my heart. God, you've tried my lips, my mouth. And now look at verse four, as for the deeds of men, by the words of your lips, I have kept far from the path of the wicked. Lord, I'm not walking with them. Verse five, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Here's a man of integrity. If you hear anything in this emotional prayer, here's what you need to hear. This is a man of godly piety. And he says, God, examine me. God, you've tried me. God, you've tested me. God, you've refined me. God, you've put me through the fire. And it's almost like David is saying, Lord, I have nothing to hide. Maybe in our modern vernacular, I have no corner of my life of hidden sin. I've got no app on my phone that I really know I should delete. I've got no hidden relationship that is ungodly. I've got no hidden lifestyle that I know is impure. I've got no foul mouth that I have when I'm away from home. I have no secret sin in my life. I mean, here's David saying, God, you've examined me. You've tested me. You've tried me. You've looked at me. Wow. What a man of integrity. What a question. Can you and I say that? David is not, he's not in some super pious, arrogant way saying I'm perfect, but he's living a blameless, a well-rounded, a consistent life. It's like, can we say with David at the end of verse three, you have tested me and you find nothing. Wow. I mean, boy, I want to say that. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when all of the false teachers and the false apostles were sort of infiltrating the Corinthian church and Paul's heart was just breaking, and Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.12, my confidence is the testimony of my conscience. I love that verse. My confidence is the testimony of my conscience. Oh, what a beautiful thing to have a clean conscience. To say with David, test me, O Lord. I mean, just look in my life, look in my heart, look at my mouth, look at my my words, look at my conduct. And in verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. I think that's the key to maintaining a clear conscience. To hold fast to God's paths. I don't think it's any... Any, any mistake that the Apostle Paul, writing to young Timothy in pastoral ministry, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul said to Timothy, you need to keep the faith and a good conscience. Keep the faith, yes, and maintain a good conscience. Theodore Beza, 
maybe from church history you know, he was the successor of John Calvin. In Beza, it is often said that he would pray frequently, Lord, perfect what you have begun in me. Perfect what you have begun in me so that I will not suffer shipwreck when I am almost at heaven's haven. Lord, Lord, I want you to guard me. I want you to perfect me. I want you to guide me. I want you to sustain me so that I don't shipwreck my faith when I'm almost to heaven. Guide me all the way through. May I live with a clean conscience. Number one, how does David pray? Test me, O God. I think that's a great lesson for all of us. David was the king of Israel. You and I aren't, but we, we can take these words and say, I want the Lord to test me, refine me, examine me, look at me, scrutinize me, look deep into my heart and my life and test me. And not only, number one, test me, but in your outline, number two, keep me, O God. Now, in verses 6 to 12, David goes to the next thought in his prayer, And this is the cry of the redeemed that is urgent and persistent and desperate and honest. It's it's really a simple format. What do you do? What do you do when you feel attacked? Now, I didn't put it in your notes, but I'll mention it real quick. Number one, you have to hide in God. Number two, be honest with God. Number one, hide in God. That's what David's going to do. Number two, we got to be honest with God. <clears throat> so notice in verses six to eight, David hides in God and he says, oh Lord, I need you to protect me. Verse six, I have called upon you. Verse six, you, you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me and my spe- hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's like David prays and he says, I call, verse 6, I call, and I know that you will answer me. Do you see that there? Don't miss the confidence of verse 6. I pray and I know, God, you will answer me. I know you will. I know you will. Hear me, O Lord. And then he goes to verse 7. And you, you, you got to get this. This is, like, this is like the peak of the psalm. Verse 7. Wondrously show your loving kindness. Oh, and in Hebrew, this is great. The word wondrous is the word that means amaze us. Thrill my heart. Miraculously demonstrate your covenant love, your, your redeeming love. God, I, I want you to amaze and astonish me with your love. Now, when opponents are coming against you, how, how does God show his wondrous love to you and me? Let me just give you a few ways that you might think about this. Number one, in giving up his own son to make you an object of his love. That's one way God shows his wondrous love. Another, 
God shows his wondrous love to you in wondrously decreeing your election, your justification, your adoption, and your glorification. This is all a decree of God, a done deal of God, a divine work of God, all glory to God. Wondrously show your love. Third, how does he show it? In living for you, in dying for you, and in living in you and empowering you. How does God wondrously show his love to you? He delivers you daily. He delivers you daily and providentially in probably countless ways you and I aren't even aware of. You know, we we leave something behind. We have to go back home and find it and get it. And then we go back and there's an accident on the freeway. And we think, man, if I hadn't gone back home, that that could have been me. I mean, all those ways in which we're not even aware of how God is providentially and wisely working in our lives to protect and guard and deliver us. God wondrously shows his love in meeting with you in the ordinances, in corporate worship, in Bible reading, in prayer. Wondrously show your love. David is being hunted by the enemies, and yet he's praying, God, I want you to astonish me with your loving kindness. Because sometimes when the enemies are drawing near, we can be pretty self and inward focused. And what is David doing? He's looking and taking the focus upward to the love of God that has been revealed in Christ at the cross. And that frames this in a new perspective that my God is good. He is saving. He is my father. He is doing everything for his glory and for my welfare. Well, then verse 8, notice how David continues. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. What, what tender love. God, hide me. God, protect me. So David prays, hide me, hide me. But he also must be honest with God. Now, you can't miss verses 9 to 12. This is David being just blunt and honest with God. Lord, you need to see what's going on here. As if God doesn't know, he does. Look at verse 9. Let's just look at the description of these guys. Verse 9, hide me from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies, so they're deadly, who, who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. That means they're full of pride. With their mouth, they speak proudly. These guys are blasphemous. Verse 11, they have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. They are hateful, lurking, secretive. And then he says, verse 12, they're like lions. And they just want to tear me to pieces. I mean, Lord, help me. Deliver me. I've got many enemies and they're out to kill me. Now, you and I can read that and we can say, yeah, that's King David. And maybe he's on the run in the wilderness and King Saul is chasing him. That may have been the situation. But for you and for me, 
Maybe it's family members and friends who turn on you with hurtful words because of your clear gospel stance at a holiday dinner table. Maybe it's a boss or a manager in the workplace who who begins to treat you harshly and unfairly, unjustly, because of your commitment to Christ and abstaining from worldly talk. Maybe the pursuit of you will be civil laws. Ordinances, new legislation that that is going after Christians and evangelists and street preachers and gospel proclaimers and parents because of our tireless proclamation of the gospel. Maybe it's those at school. Maybe it's those at the university. Maybe it's those... In your neighborhood, maybe it's someone on a sports team who may slander you because of your holy lifestyle and maybe you've called out their sin. You've warned them of judgment. You've called them to the Savior and because of your proclamation of truth, they've called you every foul name in the book. Maybe it's those at Mardi Gras or those at Pride or Fourth of July who hear the gospel and They hate it with proud, blasphemous words or assaults or threats. And maybe if none of those are true, child of God, we have the great enemy of our souls and all of his minions who are spiritually and invisibly going after us. And so we can take these words of David and we can make them our own and we can say, oh, help us, O Lord. Help us, O Lord. Keep me, Lord. You've got to come to my aid, O Lord. This is bigger than me. I need you. Real quick, take your Bible. I want to show you this is not just an Old Testament thing. Go to Matthew chapter 10. In what I believe is such a remarkable missionary chapter. Jesus warned the disciples of coming trouble. I mean, he, t- he tells them in Matthew chapter 10 that I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, verse 16. So you got to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And then Jesus tells them that in verse 16 to 23, my disciples, you're going to be rejected in four realms. Now, how would you like this commission? I mean, if Jesus is calling you into ministry, now go and be my proclaimers, but by the way, you're going to be rejected in four realms. Number one, you're going to be rejected in the area of religion. Why? They're going to scourge you in the synagogue, verse 17. And then second of all, they're going to reject you in the government. Verse 18, you're going to be brought before governors and kings as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. And then third, you're going to be hated and rejected by your own family. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death. A father is child and children will rise up against parents. And then fourth, society as a whole is going to reject you. Society. Why? Verse 22, you're going to be hated by all because of my name. So you got religious rejection, government rejection, family rejection, society rejection. What in the world do you do then? Verse 24, 
you need to make up your mind to be a disciple of Christ. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. So what do you do? Verse 26, don't fear them. Don't fear man. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be known. Verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 31, don't fear, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Well, what do you do? Verse 32, look forward to heaven. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father who is in heaven. And you and I might think, man, this is such a high cost. I mean, there's, there's danger. I'm going to be hated. I'm going to be persecuted. People are going to hunt my life. Jesus says, I'm glad you're thinking that way. Because at the end of the chapter, verse 37, you need to count the cost. 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. What's the point? Following Christ is tough. I mean, there are going to be opponents who pursue us. And we need to go back to the example of David and the words of Jesus. And we need to remember the simple ways to pray. Number one, test me. Examine my heart, Lord. Number two, keep me. God, protect me. God, deliver me. Help me. Which is now the third point. You see it there in your outline. Back to our psalm. Deliver me. Deliver me. Now, in these final couple of verses, just very quickly, there is an expectant imprecatory. What does that mean? That's a prayer of judgment, a prayer calling down a curse upon the enemies. David is asking God to judge the enemies and destroy them. What? How does he pray that? Look at verse 13. Notice the four rapid fire verbs. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Bring him low. And then deliver my soul. David is not asking for the enemy's judgment because David is taking personal vengeance. That's not the point. David is not upset what they're doing to him. David is upset because his enemies are worldly and disobeying God. David is troubled. David is praying to God, saying, God, you've got to bring my enemies low. You've got to confront my enemies. Why? You've got to do it with your hand because they are men of this world and they've rejected you and they've rejected your word and they've rejected the gospel. Notice how he describes them, verse 14. They're men. Verse 14, they're men of the world. Their portion is in this life. They have no hope in the life. Next life, all their portion is in this life. Verse 14, their belly you fill with treasure. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their babes. They have no part in heaven. Everything that they're expecting and living for is bound up in the here and now. Everything that they have and live for is right now. What a tragedy to have a portion in this life only. 
It's like the rich man who died in Luke 16 and he went immediately into torment. He was in agony in the flames. And if you're like David and you've got hardship and you've got those that are coming after you, I want to encourage you, you have Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Lord, your leader, and your champion who went before you, and he endured this. He had enemies. He had opponents who oppressed him. He understands, he relates, he helps you, he prays you through this life, and he prays you all the way into heaven. David, David doesn't find his confidence in this world like the wicked. All that they're living for is the treasures that fill them up now. Look at the end of the psalm, verse 15. And you got to see the contrast, as for me. But on the other hand, as for me, contrast the wicked, and they just live for their portion in this world. As for me, don't miss this, I will behold your face in righteousness. This is the beatific vision. Christians have called it through the centuries. The beatific vision literally is the sight that makes one happy. The sight that makes one happy. I will see the face of God. By the way, Old Testament theology of the afterlife is pretty clear. David wasn't fuzzy about eternity. He knew that when he died, he would behold God face to face. And he knew, verse 15, that I would behold your face in righteousness. I will be clothed in righteousness, in perfect glory, robed in the merit of my substitute. David has written much on that in the Psalms. And then he said, I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. We could talk about heaven for hundreds of years from this verse. That you and I will be infinitely satisfied. That we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And that we will be totally his at the very instant of our death when we awake in glory. Amazing hope. You and I need to remember that when opponents are oppressing us, when oppressors are coming after us, when persecutors are approaching us. I need that reminder. You need that reminder. Remind me of that. I'll remind you of that. We have a hope of heaven. We will behold the face of God. We will be satisfied with perfect likeness to Christ in glory at the moment we awake. Remind me of that. Jonathan Edwards was commenting on this hope, and here's what he said. After they, that is the believers, have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God for millions of ages, just ponder that. It will not grow a dull story. 
but the relish of this delight will be as exquisite, as exciting, as enthralling as ever. Can you imagine that when we are beholding the face of God, it'll never grow old. It'll never be boring. We'll never need to look elsewhere. We will have all that we need in him. What a great psalm. What a needed psalm for us. You know, I think in a similar way, there's just a closing verse from 1 Peter chapter 5 that I think is a fitting word of encouragement to us as we are going through these times oppressed by opponents. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered for a little while, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a God. After you've suffered for a little while. So keep persevering. Keep enduring. Keep following Christ. Keep your eyes upward looking to him. Know that he has lavished his loving kindness upon us. And after a little while, the God of all grace who called you will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Write these wonderful, precious, eternal truths upon our hearts. In Jesus' name.